Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to this week's edition of the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here with John Mitchell. We're deep in the heart of our 2020 college football previews. With the caveat, of course, that we are in the midst of the novel coronavirus pandemic, and we do not quite know yet what's going to be happening with the season. But we're working with the best info we have at the time that we're talking. And so this week we're covering the Big 12, which, you know, I think one of the big stories about the Big 12 is just... You know, they obviously have their conference season, but they're doing their damnedest to hold on to non-conference schedules as much as possible. Um, do you think this is the right move, John? You know, I I don't know. It's hard to say. I, you know, I, every conference is kind of approaching this differently so far. You know, we've seen some, like the Pac-12, jump on and go ahead and, and cancel games. And I guess it's, you know, I guess it makes sense from both sides of things, you know, the Big 12 and the SEC had hold on to as many money games as they could hold on to, obviously, and the Pac-12 is doing something more prudent because they believe that, you know, it's not really likely that we're going to get those games in. So I don't really have an opinion either way. I, I think it's going to be, I think it's optimistic to think that we'll get non-conference games in. I think it's optimistic that we're even going to get a full conference schedule in, uh, but I'm not going to fault these schools for being optimistic. But I think what you're seeing, or what we're not seeing, but is definitely going on in the background, is a lot of contingency plans being made across the country. Oh, yeah. And I think that's something we really need to keep in mind as we move forward with these previews throughout the next couple weeks. And as we, you know, even just talk about the Big 12 today, is the fact that. Everything is changing on a daily basis. We, you know, I mean, by the time we record this on Monday evening for Wednesday morning posting, it, you know, it could change by Wednesday. It has on us before on the college football cycle when we talk coaching carousels for sure. So, I mean, in the midst of a pandemic, that's even more chaos. The one thing that I also find interesting here, though, is with schools trying to hold on to these non-conference games in the Big 12, it's going to impact some schools more than others. Already, just with the cancellations we've seen from the Big 10, the Pac-12, and at this point, multiple FCS conferences, which I think is as impactful as losing Power 5 games for some of these schools that were we're going to talk about where they're just trying to get to bowl eligibility. But, you know, both TCU and Texas Tech have lost two games off their schedule, um, Pac-12 games and then uh, FCS games with the Southwestern Athletic Conference canceling its fall football season. Five teams in the conference, Oklahoma State, Iowa State, Texas Tech, West Virginia, and Kansas have lost one non-conference game. I'm just curious, out of these seven teams that so far have lost games, and, you know, at this point, Oklahoma, Texas, and Baylor could also get, you know, that kind of news coming down the pipeline soon enough. But out of who we know right now, John, which team do you think is going to be most impacted by the loss of non-conference games this season? 
I think you got to look at the teams that are kind of middle of the pack in the conference, the teams that would be scraping for bowl eligibility. So TCU and Texas Tech kind of immediately came to mind because you said, you know, like you said, both have lost two non-conference games already. And for those schools, you know, trying to get six wins or whatever the equivalent of six wins is going to be this year, I'm sure there's going to be a change in that if we do have a bowl season because of so many cancellations across the country. And, you know, obviously teams are scrambling to try to make up those games and schedule other opponents, um, but not everyone's going to be able to do that. There's just not going to be enough teams to to be able to make that work. So I look at a team like TCU, a team like Texas Tech, teams that were probably going to be really scrapping to try to get 500 this year and win six games to get bowl eligibility, losing those non-conference games, particularly ones that look like they would probably be wins, at least from Texas Tech's perspective, I think's uh, a, a pretty big loss. And for TCU, you know, they had a real opportunity to get their season started against a really quality Pac-12 opponent in Cal, and that could have really propelled them right away from a team that, you know, went 5-7 and seven last year and a team that a lot of people are thinking has got a chance to really climb up the Big 12 standings that really could have got them off on the right foot. Yeah, you know, and I look at the impact also of a game like West Virginia losing their home game against Maryland. You know, you had the chance to sort of revive an old rivalry and something that was going to be a real money generator for the town of Morgantown. You know, plenty of fans would have made that trek from from Maryland over to West Virginia for that game. Um, if, you know, indeed it was a regular season, business as usual, 100% capacity in the stands, or, you know, 107% as it so often feels like against the official number at some of these college stadiums. But, you know, I think if we look at it from that revenue standpoint, something like that's going to really hurt as well, especially the teams that had home games against Power 5 competition. So, you know, out of that, we've obviously got some schools that are going to be hurting for wins, trying to get to bowl eligibility. I'm also curious, which team do you think ultimately is going to be least impacted by the loss of non-conference games? You know, I, I think you it's always about the haves and the have-nots in college football. So when you look at the top of the conference, obviously Oklahoma hasn't lost any non-conference games yet. But, you know, the clock's probably ticking on that actually happening at some point. But a team like Oklahoma that still generates a lot of revenue, that's, you know, been the class of the Big 12 for what feels like at least a decade at this point, um, you know, to me that's probably the team that can really um, afford to be without it. And then, you know, the Texases of the world as well. They haven't been as competitive as Oklahoma in recent years, but they've still got, a lot of um, revenue in their athletic department where they can withstand the potential loss of some home football games, the, you know, the crowds that accumulate for those games. And I mean, I believe the state of Texas uh, said on Monday that their plan was still 50% capacity for football games this year, which feels wildly optimistic to me. So uh, I don't really see that happening at all, but yeah, that, the, the big dogs of the world, the Oklahomas and the Texases and the Big 12, and then the other conferences, your Alabamas, your LSUs, those are the teams that are going to be able to withstand uh, potential financial losses, even though those are probably the teams that stand to lose more money because they generate more money. Um, they have more they're able to lose before it really, really hurts them. 
The one other question that comes up out of that, and this is something we'll obviously discuss more down the line, but which team is hurt most out of that trio if they lose any games, the Texas-Baylor-Oklahoma trio, in terms of the college football playoff, if any of them were to get through to that discussion at the end of the season? You know, honestly, it's probably Texas in my mind, just kind of off the top of my head, just because they had that big non-conference opportunity at LSU. Um, if that game ends up being canceled, you know, they're they're going to be underdogs most certainly in that game going to Baton Rouge to play the defending champs. But LSU's, uh, you know, we've talked about this in past episodes, and we'll talk about it when we get to the SEC preview. They've got a lot that they've got to replace this year. Uh, so that's a, a really good opportunity for Texas. Um, and, you know, they were really competitive against LSU and Austin last year. Uh, the Tigers only won that game by a touchdown. Um, so, I, you know, Texas had the opportunity to potentially score a program-altering win in Baton Rouge. And like we said, as of now, that game is still on, but it remains to be seen whether we'll get it or not. Uh, but if that game's canceled, that definitely hurts not only Texas's chances in the college football playoff, but I think hurts Tom Herman's chances of really earning uh, a signature win because that's the type of game, Zach, that doesn't kill you if you lose it, but it can make you if you win it. Exactly. Yeah, I think for Texas, that would be a huge loss if that comes off their schedule. I think also for Texas, if they go away, they're the only team in that mix that has zero FCS teams on their schedule. So, you know, their schedule kind of dips a bit rather than rises a bit or their schedule strength, rather, would almost lower a bit losing a team like LSU and then, you know, the rest of their non-conference schedule versus, you know, losing a Prairie View A&M or, a, you know, even a, a Cal, perhaps, or a Maryland. So, speaking of that, out of the, you know, so far we've only lost eight games out of the non-conference schedule based on conferences that have confirmed that they're not going to be playing football this fall. And, you know, five of them are Power 5 opportunities between Big 12 schools and either the Pac-12 or the Big 10. Um, three of them are, you know, what we lovingly refer to as paycheck games. And I'm just curious, out of that list of eight... Is there one game that stands out as one you really wish we would get to see? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's the El Lasico, right? It's the Iowa State-Iowa game. Uh, just the big rivalry between the Cyclones and Hawkeyes. And that's one of the games that really, when you look at it, probably doesn't make a ton of sense not to play if we're going to play football in the fall anyway because, you know, the idea would be to limit travel and stuff like that, and those two teams are in the same state. So there's really no reason if we're going to go forward with the season that we could do this. Um, and, you know, I know it probably hurts Iowa State more than Iowa because they've struggled to get a win in that series, and particularly how the game ended last year with a fumbled punt late in the game where it looked like the Cyclones were going to take it. Um, so I know that the fans in Ames are really frustrated to have to wait another year to get another crack at the Cyclones for are for the Hawkeyes and you know for Iowa it's you know probably not as big of a thing they can put it on pause because they're used to dominating the series in recent years anyway so but yeah missing that game because that one is always 
fun in ways that are maybe different than some other fun games. There's all it got the name El Asico for a reason, right? Um, so there's always something crazy and stupid that happens in that game. That's always must see television in the first couple weeks of the season. Yeah, that's definitely one I'll miss for sure. Um, you know, I mentioned Maryland, West Virginia. I think that's one that has a huge revenue loss there in week three, but. As somebody who loves historic football, I'm really going to miss that old border conference clash between Arizona and Texas Tech in Week 3. That's always a fun game. It was it, it, it was a great game last year when they played in Tucson, and, you know, I'd love to see that again. And then New Hampshire, you know, they act... I, it, out of any of these games, the one that was probably going to be an FCS upset was probably New Hampshire at Kansas. So, you know, I kind of feel bad for them in terms of losing that game. Cause, but at this point, they've lost their whole season. So. Right. Well, on that note, do you have... I mean, that... Yeah. No, I was going to say, that Texas Tech-Arizona one's a big one, too, I think, for a couple of coaches who are hoping to make some progress. You know, Kevin Sumlin in Arizona hoping to really coaching for his job at this point, meaning every win he can get. And then Matt Wells obviously looking to make the near two progress in Lubbock. So uh, from that perspective, too, it's a big loss. And like you said, it would be a fun game. That would definitely be one where uh, lots of points would be scored, defense at a premium. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, it just feels like one of those Pac-12 after dark games that we deserve to see but won't. And so... You know, but what does deserve mean in a situation like this? You know. That's true. So, any last thoughts on the Big 12 at large before we take our first break, John? Uh, not not any Big 12 at large thoughts. Just, you know, remaining hopeful that those remaining out-of-conference games we're able to see in some capacity. Because there are some really good ones on the schedule uh, that will be tough to lose if we end up having more cancellations. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I think about Oklahoma, Tennessee. You already mentioned Texas, LSU. Um, I think Baylor, Ole Miss has got the potential to be a really good game seeing, uh, you know, how Lane Kiffin deals with that team and, you know, how Dave Aranda handles Baylor in a big opportunity like that. But we don't get those games and that, or, you know, we hope we still get those games rather, but... If we don't, there's, it, we've probably got more things to worry about than just losing a non-conference schedule at this point, the way the Big 12 and SEC are operating around this. So, on that note, let's take our first break. We'll be right back. Go get yourself something to drink, stretch it out, and we'll be back to talk Big 12 teams from bottom to top. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're talking Big 12 college football preview time here. We're going to be going, uh, since we haven't had media days yet, last year when we did these previews, we went by teams' preseason ranking according to the media poll. But we don't have that, so we're going to go off of reverse order of how they finished last season. And we're using head-to-head as our tiebreakers for any ties that happen in conference standings. So, if your team falls in the bottom half of this, it might just be because they lost that tiebreaker. It might be because they had a terrible season in 2019. 
either way, one season or one team that had a a pretty much standard issue season was the Kansas Jayhawks. You know, they were in Les Miles' first season at the helm and finished tenth in the conference, one and eight record, three and nine overall, which you know pretty much matched exactly what David Beatty did in his last season there in twenty eighteen. So, I, I you know I, I look at this team; they have a long way to go, John. Do you think there's any way they climb out of the cellar this year? No, I mean, if ever there was a year zero in college football last year, it was for Les Miles in his first year in, at Kansas. And, I mean, really you could probably call it a year zero 2.0 with all the, you know, stuff with COVID-19 impacting off season and with all Kansas loss from last season. So not only are they dead last uh, in the Big 12 last season. They're dead last in returning production in the Big 12 coming into this season. So, you know, obviously Les Miles has done a few things on the trying to pull in JUCO transfers and stuff like that to try to accelerate this rebuild as quickly as possible. But, man, the mountain is steep, I think, for the Jayhawks to really show any improvement this year. Um, so I don't know. I, it probably comes down to, to who if they can find a consistent quarterback. Uh, that was one of the things that was actually a pleasant surprise last year was how good Carter Stanley was for Kansas. Yeah. He threw for 2,600 yards, had 24 touchdowns and only 11 picks. So replacing him with either uh, dual threat Miles Kendrick or senior Thomas McVitie seemed to be the top candidates for that job. Both have pretty big shoes to fill. They obviously have Puka Williams returning, who's had a couple outstanding seasons in Lawrence already, so they can definitely lean on him. But, man, that defense, um, you know, was 106th in SP plus defensively last season, and they only returned 44% of last season's team. And sometimes that can be a positive, right, because they have a lot of talent. I just don't see where the wins come, particularly with losing uh, a couple of um, what could have been. Like you said, New Hampshire is definitely not an easy win for a team like Kansas but it was one of the games that they had a real shot at getting a W in. The rest of the schedule looks pretty sparse. I don't see Kansas climbing out of the cellar. I think it's going to be another tough year for the Jayhawks. Yeah, I hate to say it, but I agree with you there. And I hate to say it just because Kansas has been down in the dumps for a long time. I mean, 2007 feels further and further in the rearview mirror as, as we continue pushing forward. But, you know, they did have a couple bright spots in Les Miles' first season. They did beat Boston College on the road. They were able to beat Texas Tech so that they weren't shut out in conference play. Um, at the same time, they lost to Coastal Carolina. And so, you know, it, obviously pretty ugly. And the fact that they have, you know, those teams on the schedule again offer a chance, obviously. Um, but I think the interesting thing is to see what's really going to happen. Can they actually replace that New Hampshire game? Uh, Dylan Morell at our, our sister site through the fog, the Kansas Jayhawks site at Fansided, uh, mentioned that some possible candidates that are coming up to replace New Hampshire are Illinois State, Northern Iowa, or even Colorado State if they decide to go with a group of five team rather than an FCS team, because 
obviously the Rams lost their annual Rocky Mountain showdown against the Colorado Buffaloes when the Pac-12 went to their their move to conference only. So that's a possibility as well that could be on the table. Obviously, you know, both teams were slated to host at home, so that would require some negotiations. But, you know, we're seeing more clever negotiations all around in in the midst of this pandemic and teams working to, you know, sort out schedules on rapid-fire notice. And, you know, if we know anything, speaking about 2007, if you know anything about college football, they normally love to schedule games 15 years out or so. But, you know, that Appalachian State-Michigan game was a last-minute replacement on their schedule that came in, like, January or February before that September kickoff. So these things can be arranged on short notice, and we can get some awesome games out of it if football is actually played. That said, for Kansas, like you said, they have 44% of their defensive production returning, only 41% of their offensive production returning, and... They're 126 out of 130 FBS teams. No other Big 12 team is below 81st in that regard. And so I think it's, like you said, it's probably, it was year negative one last year, and it's year zero now for less miles in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think that's fair for sure. Well, with that, let's push on. The team that finished ninth last season in the Big 12 was Texas Tech. The Red Raiders went 2-7 and seven in conference play and 4-8 and eight overall. This was a team whose numbers, honestly, from last season, uh, both offense and defense, were pretty darn near matched. They had a great offense that averaged 475 yards and 30.5 points a game. They had a garbage defense that averaged 480 yards allowed and 30.3 points a game. So pretty much identical in terms of quality on offense, abysmal on defense. Do you see any way that that defense can improve this year maybe, John? Yeah, I mean, the great offense, terrible defense has been the book on Texas Tech for what feels like 10 years or so at this point, right? It's been all the same. I actually have some hope, though, that this defense is going to take a step forward. They obviously lose Jordan Brooks, who was their leading tackler last year, one of the best linebackers in the nation. So having to try to improve on that side of the ball without a guy like that is obviously a challenge. But there's a lot of talent on this defense that I don't think it talked about enough. You've got Rico Jeffers back in the middle, who kind of stood in that leadership role, departed by Brooks. He was the team's second-leading tackler. Eli Howard's one of the top defensive linemen in the Big 12. And then Adrian Fry at cornerbacks, a future NFL player, in my opinion. So I think there's a lot of talent on that defense. Now, so I do think they're going to take a step forward on that side of the ball. But I think the big key for the Red Raiders this year is going to be if they're able to keep Alan Bowman healthy, right? Because that's where things went really... Um, awry last season was after he got injured they went from being a pretty competitive team to one of the worst teams in the conference and a bigger issue um, 
this year's there's no experience behind Bowman. Last year they had Jeff Duffy who had some experience in games and they could call on with Bowman injured. Duffy obviously transferred out and had his own set of issues. So now there's no real experience behind Bowman if he gets hurt. But there's a lot of talent on this offense. T.J. Basher and Eric Ezukanama are two of the top receivers in the conference. So Roderick Thompson's uh, returning at running back. So I think this Texas Tech team's got a real shot at moving forward. If they can figure out how to replace Jordan Brooks on defense and if they can keep Bowman upright and healthy. Yeah, I, you make some great points there, both with their defense and especially with the quarterback play, because that's so critical for any Texas Tech offense is having a good quarterback playing well and playing healthy. You know, this was a Texas Tech team that, you know, they struggled obviously last season, but at the same time, this was a team that lost four of their eight games were losses by three points or less. You know, four of those eight losses were a flip of a coin almost. You know, three or four plays changed that result completely. And they go from a four and eight team to an eight and four team. And we're talking about a fairly decent Texas Tech season. Pretty much standard fare. The thing about this season, though, is they're one of those two teams we talked about in that first segment that lose two games so far. You know, they've had, first of all, their Arizona game canceled. That old border conference game is canceled. And they also lost their game against Alabama State, which, you know, was their gimme game, if you will. That was the one that, that, that really allows for you to get to bowl eligibility and so you know they're they're in conversation with eight different teams right now about possibly filling those open dates the question is is you know can they fill both of those and who can they get to fill both of those especially with more fcs conferences canceling seasons as we as we continue moving forward yeah, and you're likely to get a more challenging game than Alabama State when you replace that. Because the chances are, like you said, more FCS conferences are going to move away from fall football. So you're really going to be limited in who you can find. Exactly. So it's going to be interesting to see see what happens with Texas Tech. And I think it's something we need to continue watching, you know, what happens moving forward with their ability to schedule or not schedule an 11th and or 12th game. But, you know, you mentioned this is a defense where they have a lot of returning parts to it. That's the strength of their returning roster. And in the midst of a pandemic, that's going to be critical. So... In, in terms of, you know, at preseason SP+, Plus, they're 59th in the country. I think this is a team that does have that potential to be a top-half team, you know, finish, you know, with at least five wins if they play 10 games and get to that 500 mark for bowl eligibility. I think it's definitely there on the table for them. But let's move forward and talk about some of these other teams. We had two teams that were tied for seventh last year. And we're going to talk about the TCU Horned Frogs first because they lost to West Virginia. So we talk about them first. They finished 3-6 and six in conference play, 5-7 and seven overall, 
And, you know, this was a TCU team that was snake-bitten in a lot of ways last year. They were playing with a lot of youth, with Max Dugan at quarterback as a true freshman. They had, you know, and yet, even with that said, and with the fact that their defense was not at the vintage we normally even expect from them, six of their seven losses were by seven points or less. So... Is this, you know, is this Gary Patterson's chance to really flip that narrative and, and you know, have luck go their way this year? Yeah, I mean, if you're looking for a team that's most likely to improve from last season in the Big 12, it's probably TCU. Because like you said, the six losses by one score last year were, I mean, they were as close to bowl eligibility as you could be to bowl eligibility without getting there, right? So... I still think this may be a bit of a transition year for TCU. I expect that they're going to win the requisite number of games to go uh, for bowl eligibility. It's hard for me to see a Gary Patterson team missing out on a bowl game two consecutive years. But they still feel like, to me, they're probably a year away from serious Big 12 contention. Um, They've got a lot of talent um, on that team. A lot of young talent on offense. Like you said, Max Dugan's coming into his sophomore season. Seems like he's probably finally stabilizing the quarterback position for the Horn Frogs. They really haven't had since uh, Trevon Boykin left Fort Worth. So um, they also landed five-star freshman running back Zachary Evans in the recruiting process. It'll be interesting to see how quickly he's able to contribute to their offense because he's probably already the most talented guy on that side of the ball for TCU. So if he's able to have an instant impact, that's obviously huge uh, for TCU. And then recently they landed Nebraska transfer J.D. Spillman at wide receiver who could potentially end up being the replacement for Jalen Rieger that the team really needed. He was the team's leading receiver last year and was a big hole on that offense. So, you know, particularly if they can get Evans to hit the ground running and replace Darius Anderson, who was the team's leading rusher last year. We know Gary Patterson's defense, if they stay healthy, is going to be competitive. Even in an off year for their defense, they were 35th in SB plus defense. So they weren't terrible. They're probably going to be one of the top. Uh, two or three defenses in the entire conference. So I think TCU is definitely going to move up the standings this year. I can't see another another under 500 year for the Horned Frogs. Yeah, I'm pretty much with you there. I, I, I think it would be tough to see TCU really go that far into the cellar. I think at least getting to 500 is a realistic goal for them. Getting beyond that, losing games against both Cal and against Prairie View A&M, especially against the Prairie View A&M, is going to be really tough for them because now they only have 10 games on the schedule. They're in that same spot as Texas Tech where they're scrambling to try to fill two holes rather than just one. And so, you know, I think the margin is thinner for for Gary Patterson's team, but I think it's a margin that they can still climb over regardless of that. So I'm with you there. And we'll obviously go through our our full breakdown of, of standings at the end of our third segment. So plugging to stay with us, everybody. But before we do that, let's move on to the last two teams we have in the bottom half of the standings. I mentioned West Virginia. They were tied for seventh with with TCU at three and six in conference play. They too finished five and seven overall, just outside of bowl eligibility. 
And, you know, this was a team that in a lot of ways had, you know, kind of fulfilled the old adage that if you have two quarterbacks, you have none in a lot of ways. And, you know, they had a couple of different transfers there. But, you know, the big name that came in was Austin Kendall from Oklahoma. And he wasn't getting it done right away. That was... That was one of the most interesting things I saw. Do they even try to go back to him this year, John? No, I feel like it's probably Jared Dagey's job at this point. He kind of provided the spark late in the season and helped West Virginia win a couple games there late. Um, But it really, to me, who plays quarterback doesn't matter nearly as much as can they fix their offensive line problems. Because the Mountaineers averaged just 2.6 yards per carry as a team last season. So they had no rushing offense to speak of. And obviously they struggled to protect either Daigie or Kendall when they were dropping back to pass. So that's the big issue on offense for West Virginia is improving um, up front on the offensive line. So they've got talent at the skill positions. They've got, you know, like wide receiver Sam James back. They've got... Um, talent all over the field in that regard. But if you can't block up front, you're not going to win many games. I mean, 2.6 yards per carry, even in a conference that doesn't prioritize running the football as much like the Big 12, you've still got to be more diverse on offense in order to let your quarterbacks have opportunities with a play-action passing game to be able to do stuff. I, you know, I, I wonder if this fan base is going to be able to exercise the patience that's going to require uh, because this strikes me as a bit of a Florida State-like situation from a couple years ago with Willie Taggart, that this is a bigger rebuilding job for Neil Brown than I think anyone really envisioned coming in. Because Dana Holgerson left for Houston, and no one really thought the Mountaineers were going to need a really big overhaul, I don't think. We obviously thought they were going to step back last year after losing Will Greer um, and trying to replace him. Uh, but this is a bigger job than I think anyone really realized for Neil Brown. So I wonder if the fan base is going to have the patience to wait it out and wait for him to be able to build something. Because we've seen some, we saw some good signs in year one, and I still think he's got the opportunity to do well here. But I think it's gonna, it's likely to be to me another difficult year for the Mountaineers. Yeah, you know, we t- just mentioned with TCU that six of their seven wins or six of their seven losses were by a single score. West Virginia was pretty much the poor opposite, where only two of their seven losses were by fewer than 10 points. This was a team where when they lost, they lost badly. And so I really have to wonder in that case, especially with a defense that loses more than TCU does, I'm really skeptical that Neil Brown can get them to a bowl game in year two there in Morgantown especially losing a team like Maryland off the schedule where, let's face it, unless you wear burnt orange, you're probably going to do pretty well against Maryland. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's going to be a, a big challenge. If he if he's able to get West Virginia to a bowl game, that would be a massively um, impressive coaching job. Oh, wait, wait, you... If he could get West Virginia to a bowl game, it would put him in coach of the year conversation this year, I yeah. would think. So, just given what they lose and and all of that. So, before, you know, before we go to our break though, we have one more team to talk about. So, so let's push on cuz 
We got the Iowa State Cyclones, who finished in a four-way tie for third, but they lost our tiebreaker to be talked about in the first half of, of this breakdown. You know, they finished five and four in conference play. They finished seven and six overall. The, you know, the other teams they were tied with, Texas, Oklahoma State, and Kansas State, they went one and two against these teams. And the other team that went one and two, Kansas State, they lost against them. So they finish in the sixth spot here for the purposes of our argument. But heading into this season, they definitely don't feel like the sixth best team in the conference. No, I mean, if they finish sixth or worse in the Big 12 this year, that would be an abysmal coaching job for uh, Matt Campbell. Because this Iowa State team certainly has a lot of talent. And just like we talked about earlier with TCU, this is a team that lost a lot of close games, right? The Cyclones had three losses last season by two points or less, lost another game by seven and another by ten. So we're talking about a team that could have easily, with a couple different bounces here or there, been a nine or ten win team last season without a doubt, and could have easily played for a Big 12 championship. So this team is certainly talented, but can they get better at finishing games at the end and pull out those wins and can they they've got a pretty young offensive line that's going to be a challenge too they're going to start likely start three underclassmen on the offensive line they've got the talent and the skill positions to be really good offensively obviously Brock Purdy is one of the better quarterbacks in the country dual threat guy who can beat you both ways Brees Hall was a revelation in replacing David Montgomery last year ran for 900 yards as a true freshman running back or a redshirt freshman running back um, and then they bring back Tariq Milton, that wide receiver, who had averaged over 20 yards per catch. So he's a big play guy. And then Charlie Kohler is one of the nation's top tight ends. So they've got a gluttony of talent on offense. They were a top 25 defense in SP Plus last season, um, and they returned 73% of that production from last season's defense, um, including uh, Lawrence White, who was a set team second leading tackler and led the team in interceptions last season, and Orion Vance, who led the team with six and a half sacks. So I think this Iowa State team is one of four teams to me that have a legitimate shot at winning the Big 12 this year. Uh, I think the challenge comes to the fact that they have three really tough conference road games where they go to Oklahoma State, TCU, and Texas. And those are three of the teams that are probably going to be fighting uh, for those positions between two and five in the conference. So I, I think scheduling-wise is going to be a challenge for the Cyclones, but I would not be surprised if not only Iowa State played for a Big 12 title, if they won the Big 12 this year. They're certainly talented enough to do so. Yes, yeah, certainly. I, I think Iowa State brings a ton of talent back. There are a few things that concern me, though. First of all, they lose four of their five offensive line starters from last season. They have to basically rebuild that unit. And they certainly have pieces and parts that have gotten experience on the field that have real opportunity to step up and make, a, you know, that big leap this year as a starter. But at the same time, that's a big question mark coming into a season like this. Also, as we mentioned in the previous segment, they won't be playing their rivalry game against Iowa. They, you know, so even if they were to, you know, let's talk about this hypothetical. If they go on to play in the Big 12 championship game and then win the Big 12 championship game, and if we go by last year where they had the chance to flip, 
at least four of their games last year and go eleven and two and rather than seven and six. You know, if that same sort of thing happened this year, they went ten and one or you know eleven and one after a championship game win. We have to ask, how would the college football playoff committee look at Iowa State without that Iowa game, with only non-conference games against FCS South Dakota and against UNLV, which has been a cellar dweller in the Mountain West regularly? Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a difficult thing for many schools to navigate, right? So the teams that have... um, their non-conference games that are sticking against strong opponents are obviously going to be in a better position uh, to have a shot at the um, college football playoff. If we have a college football playoff this season, obviously that remains to be seen. But certainly not an envious year to be on the selection committee because there's no real, you know, there's obviously no precedent for any of this. And um, obviously there's never been clear indications uh, by the committee on what constitutes one of the four playoff teams, and I think it's going to be an even bigger challenge this year to shuffle through and figure that out. It almost makes you feel like this year they might just go back to the old BCS formula and calculate it out themselves and then, you know, release it out to the world with whatever florid justification they they tap onto it. So, one that... Yeah, I mean, that's as good of a way as to do it as any other. It really would be. I mean, especially in a season like this, let the computers have some say. But that's a rant for another time, everybody. You've heard me give it enough times if you've been a regular listener of this podcast. Let's get ourselves a quick break because that was a lot of information to digest. When we come back, we're going to talk about the top half of the Big 12 offer our thoughts on how the final order might shake out, and we'll take a quick look as to whether any of these teams have a realistic shot of making the college football playoff. So stay tuned. Welcome back for the final segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're talking Big 12 football this week, looking at our 2020 season preview series, and that's the conference we've landed on now. Last segment, we talked about the bottom half of the Big 12 based on the 2019 standings. Now we're diving into the top half of that order. And as I mentioned at the end of the previous segment, we had a four-way tie at third place, which meant Iowa State, based on the tiebreakers, went in the bottom half of the segment. Leading that order is the team that beat Iowa State to make sure that they won that tiebreaker, Kansas State, who also finished tied for third with a 5-4 and four record. They, however, finished 8-5 and five overall rather than 7-6. and six. And, you know, this is a team that, you know, they had, their, their defining win last season obviously was that upset of Oklahoma. Yeah, I mean, that was, obviously, Chris Kleiman had a a really good pedigree coming from North Dakota State um, to the Little Apple, um, and Kansas State overachieved what many prognosticators thought. I think a lot of people considered it a year zero situation at Kansas State for Kleinman, and he quickly threw that out the window, and Kansas State winning eight games, I think, shocked a lot of people. 
particularly beating Oklahoma the way they did. So he's already got a lot of positive equity from the fan base for that win. Getting a signature win like that in year one is so big to build a program. So this program is one that I think definitely on the rise and heading in the right direction. But I don't know that that's going to stop them from having a bit of a regression in year two. Um, they have to replace um, a lot on the offensive side of the ball in particular. They lost all five starters on the offensive line. So completely rebuilding that unit. Um, I think there's a lot of pressure um, on Skylar Thompson this year at quarterback. I think he's going to have to carry a lot of the load. Like I said, they lose, replace their whole offensive line. They lost their leading rusher in James Gilbert. They lost their leading receiver in Dalton Schoen as well. So a lot of pressure on Thompson. We know the defense is probably going to be pretty good. Uh, that's just kind of the earmark of a Kleinman team. Uh, you know, they've got some holes to fill on that side of the ball, but with Elijah Sullivan and Wyatt Hubert, they've got a couple of really solid building blocks. They're going to be a, probably a top four or five defense in the entire conference. I just don't think they're going to have the offense to seriously compete in the Big 12 this year. And this is one of the more fascinating teams because Kleinman doesn't run the kind of up-tempo offenses and stuff that have been the norm in the Big 12. So it'll be really interesting to see how this kind of smash-mouth brand of football kind of goes. It's obviously a perfect place because they got used to the store of stuff with Bill Snyder for many years um, at Kansas State. So I think there's going to be a bit of a regression in year two for Kleinman, but this is certainly a program that's on the up and up. Yeah, Kleinman feels like the perfect fit match between program and coach. He really does, uh, coming from Fargo as he did. And, you know, the thing I like about Kansas State this season, I'm not going to say that they're going to compete for a conference title by any means, but I think they can get to bowl eligibility. And I think, you know, I misspoke in that first segment. I said there were only three teams that, that had no uh, losses in conference games. Kansas State also hasn't lost any of their non-conference games yet. They're slated to play Buffalo, FCS North Dakota, and Vanderbilt. And I think all three of those games offer a real winning chance for them. Especially with, as you mentioned, the defense they have coming back. You mentioned Hubert and Sullivan. I also like that secondary built around strong safety Wayne Jones. I think he's got a real chance to progress into one of the top defensive backs in the Big 12 this season. And, you know, I think the other part of that is as the season progressed in 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 year one for Clayman, it's one of those things where they lost by 13 points, they lost by 19 points, and by the end of the season, the losses were by far less. Their last three losses were by a combined 10 points. So this is a Wildcats team that grew as the season came together. And if they can take that next progression as a team with the, the production that they do have coming back, they have that chance to you know, based on their schedule right now, definitely get to six wins, thanks to that non-conference schedule that hasn't been cannibalized yet. Yeah, I mean, bet against Kleinman at your own risk, right? I mean, he's proven to be a really great head coach. So, you know, I, I'm not super high on the Wildcats this year uh, when, I look, when I look at their roster, but would it shock me if they were right where they were last season again? No, it wouldn't. 
No, I mean, it's just one of those things that seems to happen in the Whittle Apple all the time. And, you know, speaking of success stories in far-flung places, we could say the same thing about Stillwater, because obviously the big story this off-season out of Stillwater has been Mike Gundy's t-shirt and the impact it had on, on his Heisman hopeful running back, Chuba Hubbard, and... But, you know, we've seen relative silence about that situation until, you know, Hubbard was insistent that until we see change, he, he he's not playing it down for the Cowboys. He's not doing anything as a representative of Oklahoma State. But within that day, we saw the, the video of contrition where Hubbard was more apologetic than Gundy. And, you know, we saw Gundy's later video come out, and we've seen the situation around his contract being, you know, rejiggered to lower his pay and, you know, put, you know, change the incentive structure that was built into it. And I think all of that's really interesting. Obviously, that's some kind of change. Um, whether that's enough to have this team united around one another and in a singular purpose is a real big question because no team returns more talent on either side of the ball in the Big 12 than the Pokes. Yeah, I mean, how this team comes together after the controversy with Gundy this offseason will tell the tale because top to bottom on the roster, this is one of the most talented rosters in the Big 12. This is probably Oklahoma State's best team on paper since 2011 when they finished number three. Um, they've got one of the better quarterback, running back, wide receiver combos in the country when you look at Spencer Sandworth, Spencer Sanders, Chuba Hubbard, and Tylen Wallace. Um, I think a lot of their success is going to come down to whether Sanders can take that sophomore jump because he was, he was good, solid last season as a redshirt freshman, but they need him – to become one of the best quarterbacks in the Big 12, if not the whole country, if the Cowboys want to have a legit shot at winning the conference. He's certainly got the talent to make that jump. Uh, they've got an experienced offensive line. He's got a ton of talent around him. And you got to figure the defense that was 58th in SP Plus last season is going to take an even further step up. They returned their six leading tacklers from last season, kind of headlined by senior linebackers Malcolm Rodriguez and Amon Aguamiga. Um, so this is a ridiculous talented team they need to get a little more pressure on the opposing quarterback particularly in big 12 play they only had 28 sacks as a team last year so can they put more pressure on on the opposing quarterback and it's a tough need to get pressure because a lot of teams get the ball out so quickly and play the you know pace and space kind of offenses so i think i mean on paper the pokes look really really good and i think they're going to seriously challenge for the big 12 title yeah, I really like them in that position as well, as long as that locker room stays unified. And, you know, I, I think the one disappointment for this team is obviously losing a game against Oregon State. That's, they played each other for the first time last year in Corvallis, and that worked out really well for Oklahoma State, as it has for so many teams against the Beavers recently. So losing what was probably pretty much a guaranteed win against a Power 5 opponent is, is not something that they can really replace on the schedule. But 
for Oklahoma State, the big question is going to be whether they can find any team to replace the Beavers. Honestly, I don't think it matters either way for them. It, in a lot of ways, losing Oregon State off your schedule could probably be a boost to your strength of schedule. So, when it comes down to, to time for the committee to, to ponder over them, if indeed Oklahoma State were to win a conference title, I, I don't think that's going to be damning in their their corner. So... Yeah, I mean, the only way that loss would hurt them is if they were trying to scrape out enough wins for bowl eligibility. And if they're wide on the cut line of bowl eligibility this year, that's a massive failure by Gundy and the coaching staff because this team is just too talented to be scraping around five or six wins. No, if that happens, we know the locker room was lost and that all all of these visuals meant nothing. Well, let's continue on, because that last team that finished in third in the Big 12 last year at 5-4 and four and 8-5 and five overall was none other than the Texas Longhorns, who are perpetually coming up on their year. You know, that's al- always the story in Austin. Expectations are high this season, you know, especially with a guy like Sam Ellinger back. But expectations are always high in Austin, and the seat is always a little bit toasty underneath whatever coach is sitting in it. And so, you know, even with the pandemic going on, I I think that seat is still hot for Tom Herman. They haven't lost any non-conference games yet. They'll be playing that LSU game we talked about in the the opening segment but you know they also have south florida and utep which one of those games could be more important than the other in terms of strength of schedule but in both cases they should be automatic wins for a longhorns team year in and year out yeah i mean i think the best way to sum up the last decade of texas football and the change we've seen in the Longhorns is how excited the fan base was in 2018 to win 10 games, to go 10-4. and four. You know, and that was just a huge deal, right? Texas is back, back to being elite. It wasn't that long ago where four losses would get you fired at Texas, right? So They'd get you, you know, the Bo Pelini treatment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, they took a step back last year and just went 8-5. and five. Um this is certainly feeling like it could be a make-or-break year for Tom Herman. Obviously, high expectations for anybody in Austin. Uh, he came to Texas with just as high of expectations, if not higher than any coach in the country, coming after such success he had at Houston and being one of the top young coordinators before that in the country had been always linked to big jobs. So, obviously, there's a lot of eggs in the Ellinger basket. They're going to have to keep him healthy this year uh, to really avoid uh, any issues. Uh, they've got to replace their top two receivers in Devin DuVernay and Colin Johnson, uh, but Brennan Eagle seems up to the challenge there. They returned Keontae Ingram, who had 850-plus yards last year, nearly six yards a carry. And really it depends on how this defense kind of improves because they return 82% of their defensive production. They were only 68th in the country in defensive S&P Plus last season. So I'll need that number to certainly go up. But it's kind of interesting how many good defenses it looks like the Big 12 is going to have this year. 
because I'm pretty high on the Longhorns' prospects on that side of the ball because they're obviously ridiculously talented. They've got guys like Joseph Asai, who led the team in tackles and sacks last year. They've got Caden Stearns and B.J. Foster in the defensive backfield, who were two of the highest-regarded recruits a few cycles ago and should, both entering their junior season, should be really ready to break out and become absolute studs for the Texas defense. So this Texas team, you know, They've got the talent on paper, just like a couple others, to really compete for a Big 12 championship this year. Um, and if they don't, if they kind of suffer another, you know, third or fourth place finish in the conference, you got to think that Herman Seed's going to be getting really, really warm in Austin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because of what he was able to do immediately at Houston and you know, going to a New Year's Six Bowl that first year as the the AAC champion, and then really being on track to do it that second year if the wheels hadn't fallen off against Navy, because they beat Oklahoma, let's not forget. They beat Lamar Jackson, led Louisville, and then the wheels fell off in conference play, unfortunately, for them. But that was a team that at that point was on track, not just for a New Year's Six bid, but to really threaten for a college football playoff bid as a group of five team because of that non-conference schedule they had. And so, you know, Texas has that real chance to take that leap forward. And I think the other thing we really, you know, need to pay attention to is that defensive line is really going to be important as well. You look at a guy like Taquan Graham stuffing the middle at defensive tackle, and this is a team that was top 30 in tackles for loss last year, and so they need guys like Graham to step up even further and open up lanes for everybody else, and I think if they do that, the defense has that chance to take that next leap you know, drop from maybe 27.5 points per game. Even just three, four points a game puts them in a really elite company. And with that much returning talent and the way Texas recruits year after year, even with their recent downturn, I, I, I think the stars align for, for a real possibility in Austin. The question is, is whether they can make the most of that opportunity. As it always is. Right. Either Texas is back or it's time to fire the coach, right? That's the only two options. Well, exactly. Either Texas is back or Texas is back next year when they bring the right guy in. So, right. you know, for for most teams, that would be a wonderful problem to have. And, you know, I think for a school like Baylor, who finished second last year... At eight and one in conference play and eleven and three overall, you know, losing that guy could be a real issue. You know, it happened when Art Bryles ended up, you know, departing Baylor. That that's a whole nother story we're not going to get into right now. But you know, you think most recently Matt Rule re- leaves for the Carolina Panthers job, and now it's Dave Aranda's team to lead. I love this guy from his time at Wisconsin. Obviously, he was a great defensive coordinator at LSU as well. Um, but it's a huge question mark going into 
a season especially where we didn't have a full slate of spring practices, we're in the midst of a pandemic, this is not business as usual. And for a guy who's a defensive coordinator to have a team with only 32% of its defensive productivity from 2019 back on the field in 2020, that could be a real issue. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, losing 68% of your defensive production is huge. Obviously, Aranda is a defensive-minded guy. He's going to have that defense humming sooner, sooner rather than later. That's really what they hung their hat on last year. They were the best defense in the Big 12. And having that good of a defense, an opportunistic defense at that, is what helped them in so many close games. They were plus 11 in turnovers last year, and they won five games by one score. So they were really fortunate in a lot of close game situations. And a lot of that goes to having a defense that could get stops when it absolutely had to get stops in end-of-game situations. I don't know that that's going to be the case this year because they have just so much to replace. Um, the cupboard's certainly not bare on that side of the ball. He's got Terrell Bernard, for instance, who's certainly a guy that you can build around. He was the leading tackler last season. You can build a defense around a guy like that. Um, but, you know, offensively, they lose Denzel Mims, who was their leading receiver. That's going to be a challenge. And can they improve on the offensive line? Charlie Brewer was sacked 38 times last year. They're going to need to keep him upright a lot better than they did last season if they want to be a contender in the Big 12 again. So I, I love the Aranda hire for Baylor. I think he's going to continue doing some of the things that Matt Rule was doing with this program. I think it's kind of going to be a seamless transition in that regard. But even if Rule was in Waco this year, I think this was the team most likely to regress in the Big 12. Yeah, I hate to say it, Bears fans, but I agree with John on this one. This is, you know, I mean, when you have the best defense in the conference and you lose more from your defense than any other team in the conference, regression to the mean is kind of inevitable. This is a team that was two losses against Oklahoma and two, let's face it, honestly, fairly close losses against Oklahoma away from playing in the college football playoff last season. Because if they had won both the regular season game and then the Big 12 championship, or even lost the regular season game and then won the Big 12 championship, they had a real argument to make as a 12-1 team heading into the postseason. So I, I think it's really fascinating to see where this team goes, but I think in Aranda's year one, especially year one as a head coach, having been an incredibly talented defensive coordinator for a long time, but never had to be that that manager of an entire program before, there could be some some growing pains there. So, hey, in there, Bears fans, it's probably not, you know, complete awfulness, but it, it might be a bit of a step back from playing for the conference title. Yeah, I mean, I think any first-year head coach is going to have a lot of growing pains, particularly with a condensed off-season program. Yeah, I mean... Maybe the only guy in this conference that could have handled it was the guy we're going to be talking about next, Oklahoma Sooners head coach Lincoln Riley, who led the program to yet another Big 12 title last season. 
This was a team that finished 8-1 and one in conference play as well with the aforementioned loss to Kansas State, that, that shocker of a result. And, as we also mentioned, nearly losing to Baylor in the regular season. But this was a school that finished 12-2 and two overall, obviously won the conference championship game, lost in the Peach Bowl by a huge blowout to LSU, 63-28. to Not necessarily a knock against this team, because that LSU team was ridiculous, averaging damn near 60 points a game. I mean, this was damn near a point-a-minute team. So... The one thing that's sitting there hovering over Norman, however, is that that was the third straight time in the fourth year in five seasons that Oklahoma has lost in the college football playoff semifinals. And it hasn't been since the BCS era. It hasn't been since the Sam Bradford era since they played for a national championship at Oklahoma. So, I mean, this is the first year in, you know, the the Lincoln-Riley era that they don't have a transfer quarterback to lean on as they go into the new year. It's Spencer Rattler's the guy under center. So, we have to ask ourselves, how are things going to shake out given all of this, you know, turmoil and the fact that, you know... Lincoln Riley starting to get some of that stigma that we also saw hangover, you know, big game Bob, if you will. Yeah, I mean, when you look at it, too, when Oklahoma's failures in the college football playoff, other than that overtime loss to to Georgia, they've been non-competitive in a lot of those games, right? I mean, they were blown out by LSU last year. The year before, they played Alabama, and it was an 11-point game, but anybody who watched that game knew the margin wasn't really that close. I mean, Alabama jumped out to a 28 nothing lead in that game and just kind of held on after that. So, yeah, you know, can Oklahoma go from Big 12's best to one of the to the nation's best, right? Because the only thing lacking on Lincoln's resume at this point is the national championship. Um, and you, you made a great point. There's no ready-made starting quarterback um, this season for the Sooners, whether it's Spencer Rattler, like everybody probably believes is going to be, or whether Tanner Mordecai somehow beats out the hotshot freshman quarterback. Um, there's no Jalen Hurts. There's no Kyler Murray. There's no Baker Mayfield. There's no guy that you can feel confident is going to go out there and lead you uh, in close victories and stuff like that. So, you know, I think there's going to be less margin for error for the Sooners this year because they've got a young quarterback who's going to be more susceptible to mistakes. Uh, so they're going to have an uptick in turnovers almost certainly. And, you know, can the defense stay? Obviously, Alex Grinch did a really good job last season with Oklahoma's defense. They were much better on that side of the ball than they had been in recent seasons. Uh, they were 48th in SP-plus defense last season. You know, but they lose Kenneth Murray in the middle of that unit, and he was one of the nation's best backers last year. He's a first-round pick in the NFL draft. That's going to be difficult. So can they build a defense um, without him to anchor it that can keep pace or even probably be need to be a little bit better on that side of the ball this year, I think, for Oklahoma to be as good of a team as they were last season. So there's talent on that side of the ball. Jalen Redmond and Ronnie Perkins on the defensive line. They combined for 12 and a half sacks last year. Um, Delaren Turner-Yell was their second leading tackler. Brendan Radley-Hines is another really good player. 
We know the offense has just a ridiculous amount of skill position options, even after losing C.D. Lamb and Trey Sermon transferring to Ohio State. Um, you know, Trajan Bridges, Charleston Rambos are really strong receivers. They've got a good offensive line. They've got a 1,000-yard rusher. So it really depends on how quickly Rattler is able to progress. Um, obviously, as he redshirted last season, so we got the experience and the reps. So he's in a better position than a lot of incoming starting quarterbacks um, that are freshmen who have a shot at playing because he had the year in the system to kind of get there. But I worry about this Oklahoma team because I think they're going to take a small step back on offense um, with a young starting quarterback. And I think their margin for error is a little slimmer. And I'm not sure if the defense is going to be quite as good as it was last season. I think it'll still be solid. Um, but like we talked about earlier, there's so many other defenses in the Big 12 that look probably better than the Sooners unit. It's going to be a challenge, I think, for Oklahoma to win another Big 12 title. You know, I, I agree with you in terms of that defense. There's always, there's always question marks with the defense in Oklahoma. Uh, you know, ever since the days of the Boz, there's been questions around that defense in Oklahoma, it feels and so, it, as much as we can talk up a defensive line that has guys like Ronnie Perkins and Jalen Redmond, we still have to wonder whether or not they can really be an elite unit. And, you know, as good as they were last year, were they elite? Mm, I have my questions about that. I'm less skeptical about the offense than you are, though, because... I still have faith in Riley as a quarterback whisperer. You look at what he did over those first three years with Mayfield, Murray, and and Jalen, and it, he was not running identical game plans with those guys. He was tailoring that offense to what his quarterbacks did best. And I think whether it's Rattler, whether it's Mordecai, I think he's going to tailor that offense to do what they do best in a way that makes them look perhaps better than they actually are. And, you know, he didn't get the Heisman three out of three, but I think, and I, I would be shocked if Rattler or Mordecai won the Heisman in his fourth year as the head coach. But until further notice for me, Lincoln Riley's the guy to beat in this conference because he's shown time and time again that, Whatever he has on offense, he can mold it around beating Big 12 defenses as good as they might be coming back this year. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't think Oklahoma's going to be bad offensively or anything this year. I just think the margin for error is thinner because they have an inexperienced quarterback. You know, they don't have a Jalen Hurts who had two years of starting experience at Alabama before coming in. They don't have the Kyler Murray. They don't have the Baker Mayfield who had experience at Texas Tech before transferring in. So I think they're going to be great on offense. I just think they're going to be a less than normal, and I think the uptick in turnovers is going to remove that thin margin they have for a defensive unit that's likely to be middle of the pack in the conference. It's going to be really interesting to see how everything shakes out for sure. Obviously, Oklahoma's not plummeting out of bowl eligibility this year. No. But let's uh, let's break it down, John. How do you have this conference finishing this year? Go bottom to top, since that's how we talked about it. 
Okay. Uh, I mean, obviously the slower <laughs> Kansas, I think we both agree that Kansas is going to come in 10th. Um, I had West Virginia slotted in at ninth. I just don't think the talent's quite there yet for Neil Brown. Like I said, I think that rebuilding job's going to take some time. I actually have Kansas State 8. I don't feel great about slotting the Wildcats there, but I think there's going to be a bit of a regression in year two. I still think that's a team that's likely to be right on the cusp of bowl eligibility, though. I think Baylor's going to finish 7th. I really think it's going to be a big slide for the Bears this year. I just don't really see it with as much as they have to replace defensively in the condensed off-season program that Aranda had to deal with in year one. I got Texas Tech 6th, which maybe is a bit optimistic for the Red Raiders, but I really think they're talented enough to really make a move. Um, TCU was 5th for me. Um, I think 5 through 7. 5 through 8 really is probably a coin flip for me. I'm pretty confident with the bottom 2. And the top four, I think, is really interesting because I think any of these four teams have a legit shot at winning the conference. But fourth, I went with Iowa State. Um, I like the Cyclones a lot, but those road games I talked about um, on their part of the segment was what kind of shifted me to push them downward. I've got Texas coming in third. Um, The Longhorns are certainly talented enough to win the conference. So I think it's a bedlam war for the top two spots. And I actually picked Oklahoma State to win the conference with the Sooners coming in second. So I like what the Cowboys have coming back. If Gundy can keep the locker room together, I think Oklahoma State is going to overtake Oklahoma this year and win the Big 12. I like that prediction, John. You know, looking at mine from bottom to top, I have it from zero to nine wins in conference play. I think it's really going to shake out where we don't have any ties this year in conference play. I've got Kansas at 0-9 in conference play, 0-11 overall. I think losing that New Hampshire game is a killer for them. And and this is a regression year for Les Miles. And I think we're absolutely right to call this one year zero. West Virginia, I agree with you, finishes ninth. They'll be 1-8 and eight in conference play, that only win against Kansas, and 2-9 and nine overall. I've got Texas Tech in 8th. I think losing a couple of those non-conference games is going to hurt them a lot and not let them get up to speed in time for conference play because that's really what they needed it for as much as anything. They'll be 2-7 and seven in the conference, 3-7 and seven overall. The rest of the teams in the conference, I've got seven teams bowl eligible out of the Big East, or out of the Big, wow, did I just say the Big East? <laughs> I've got seven teams bowl eligible out of the Big 12. I really think that Kansas State, even as they finish three and six in conference play, they're going to win all three of those non-conference games as long as they're still on the schedule and get to six wins. I've got TCU finishing 6th, 4-5, and 5-5 five, five and five overall. Obviously, they only have one non-conference game as of right now. That could improve to 6-5, and 7-5 five, and five perhaps, depending on who they schedule. But I think they finish just on that bottom side of the ledger. I've got Baylor finishing 8-4 overall, 5-4 and four in conference, 5th in the league. I'm with you on the order of the rest of it. Iowa State fourth, eight and three overall because they don't get to play that Iowa game. Six and three in the league. Texas goes nine and three, mainly because they get to play non-conference. But they'll also beat Iowa State 
so they finished with seven wins in the league. Oklahoma and Oklahoma State play for the title. Oklahoma goes in undefeated. Oklahoma State goes in with an early bedlam loss, um, but otherwise undefeated at 10-1 and going into the conference. I've got Oklahoma winning that and being that team that, once again, for the fifth time in the past six years, sneaks into the college football playoff. If indeed it happens. Yeah, I personally, I don't think anyone in the Big 12 goes to the college football playoff this year. I don't think any team's going to finish undefeated in this conference. I really think it's a really competitive league. I think you definitely have tiers that we both kind of obviously went to. You've got the bottom tier with West Virginia and Kansas. You've got the mid-tier of 5 through 8 with your TCUs, Texas Techs, Baylors, and Kansas States. And you've got that top tier of the top four that we talked about that I think any order of those four would not be a surprise to either one of us. I think we'd both be, um, you know, be able to believe that any of these four can win the conference. Yeah, I mean, last year we were both really high on Iowa State. I think this is the year Iowa State probably swoops in and makes us look stupid for talking about Bedlam. So the Big 12 is great at making us look stupid, John. Let's just face that. Yeah, that's fair. And if we would have we would have picked Iowa State again, they would have, you know, had those three or four close losses like last season that pushed them down the standing. So we're doing you a favor, Cyclones fans. You're welcome, Matt Campbell. We're glad to do this for your team. On that note, any final thoughts you want to throw out there, John, before we close this out for the week? No, you know, just keep doing your social distancing, wear your mask, let's have college football in the fall, Um, just trying to be as optimistic as possible that we have it in some capacity, because otherwise thinking that we'd go an entire fall without football is not a world I want to live in. Any football is better than no football, and in a year where we know we're not going to get a new release of the NCAA football video game, do everything you can to get us more football rather than less football and indeed no football. Do your part, fans. We're all in this together. And, you know, we can't beat it unless we're all in this together. It's just like your favorite football team. If you've got 11 individual talents who don't come together as a team, it doesn't mean jack squat. So let's come together as a team do everything you can to help us beat this curve back. And, you know, until next Wednesday, continue thinking good thoughts about this season moving forward. Next week, we'll be talking about the Big Ten, uh, which also has the interesting conference-only schedule to look forward to. So we'll have some fun thoughts to talk about on that, as well as, I'm sure more news to go into beyond that. So until then, always great to talk to you, John. Thank you, sir. Same to you. And always great to talk to you all out there in our our listening audience. We'll be back with you next Wednesday talking uh, Big Ten football. So stay tuned. Until then, have a wonderful week. Thanks for tuning in.